Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, 25 years now. You can read all of my written work at Quipster.net. That's at Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, somewhat similar to this format, although it does cover recent movies, usually ones out in theaters, on VOD, or some streaming platform, and you can find the link to that at Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third of this three-part series, looking at comedies from the 1980s that feature ghosts. The last two movies looked at the Ghostbusters films from the 1980s, and this one is kind of like the anti-Ghostbusters, like Ghostbusters from the Bizarro world. The ghosts are the ones doing the busting of humans in this particular film. I'm talking about 1988's Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is a PG-rated film that is a very generous rating. It does have quite a few disturbing images some sexual innuendo, and one F-bomb. The runtime is an hour and 32 minutes. Michael Keaton, I guess most people consider him the star, even though he's only in the film about 17 minutes or so. Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin, Catherine O'Hara, Winona Ryder, and Jeffrey Jones are in the film. The director is Tim Burton, and the screenplay credited to Michael McDowell and Warren Skarin. Now, the idea for Beetlejuice had developed back in the mid-1980s. Michael McDowell, he happened to be a horror novelist. He also occasionally wrote for television Tales from the Dark Side. At that time, he was selling the rights to some of his southern gothic novels to this former studio development executive named Larry Wilson, who was in a partnership producing with Michael Bender. Wilson had left his executive career to return to screenwriting, And he was interested in seeing if McDowell wanted to become his writing partner for a feature film. Now, he didn't really know what he wanted to do, but given that ghost-themed films were popular in the early 1980s, Wilson suggested that they should write a ghost comedy of some sort, a psychedelic one, really. He wasn't really sure what they had in mind, but they could think of something. So while McDowell and his life partner, a theater historian named Lawrence Senelik, They brainstormed for ideas living in their Boston home, and at that time they were growing so annoyed by this very pretentious, yuppie family that had moved in next door, they wished they could summon a real ghost to drive them away. And that gave them a very important idea. Maybe they should do a story where ghosts can't stand the humans who've moved in, and they're going to do anything that they can to scare them out. So they decided to write a story where the ghosts were the protagonists and the mortal humans the antagonists. And they would give the ghosts Wilson's traits, these mild-mannered introverts. They were going to give the humans McDowell's traits, these snobbish artists, and then proceed from there. Now, while they were writing, they realized that the ghosts, based on Wilson, were a little too nice to really give an effective scare. So they concocted 
kind of a third wheel, a, a hired gunslinger of a sort, a character that was a, a deadly demon that could be summoned by ghosts to do their dirty deeds, kind of like an exorcist of living people. Now, Wilson loved this new angle because this really was the catalyst to put in all kinds of crazy ideas. The zanier, the better. They started throwing in references to things that they loved. Wilson loved psychedelic rock bands of the 1960s, so he threw in a lot of references to that. McDowell loved Spanish-language horror movies, so a lot of allusions to those. Slapstick cartoons, classic comedies like Topper and Death Takes a Holiday were used as inspiration. They titled their new story Beetlejuice. Two words at that time, an alternate spelling for a star that's in the constellation of Orion. The literal translation of Beetlejuice from Arabic is the armpit of Orion. Now, when they were done with their first draft, Wilson sent it to a friend of his, an executive at Universal Pictures. Now, Wilson expected he was going to get some positive feedback for this all-new crazy original story, but instead, he was questioned by this friend, this executive, on why he was wasting his time and his promising career as an executive to push out this nonsensical crap representing his writing talent to the world. Licking his wounds, Wilson happened to be teaching at a UCLA Extension Story Analysis class, and he decided to show his Beetlejuice script to what he considered to be his smartest student at the time, this story development assistant who worked at Giffen Film Company. Her name was Marjorie Lewis. Lewis took it home, she read it, and she loved it. She recommended it, in fact, to Geffen president David Bombick, who also took it to Eric Eisner, and they decided that they were going to buy this script at their asking price, $100,000, and that included the screenwriter's services for revisions for a specified time while it was in development. Now, Geffen had a distribution partnership with Warner Brothers, and so they could pick among Warner's stable of directors that they had a development deal with. And one happened to be, seemed an obvious choice given the horror pedigree of the story, Wes Craven. Now, Craven was attached to direct after he finished filming Deadly Friend. And Craven claims that he was yanked unceremoniously after two months of work on this Beetlejuice script because Larry Wilson's old boss, Disney studio chair Jeffrey Katzenberg, told them that Craven could really not do comedy at all and Therefore, he was the wrong choice for the job. Marjorie Lewis stepped up yet again. She suggested this up-and-comer at Warner that they also had under contract named Tim Burton to direct. She loved this short film that Burton had made called Frankenweenie, and he also had scored a hit for Warner with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So uh, during this time, Burton happened to be doing TV gigs because Warner seemed to offer him only dumb cookie-cutter comedies that he had absolutely no interest in directing. One happened to be the talking horse comedy called Hot to Trot, considered one of the worst films when it finally did come out with Bob Goldthwaite a few years later. Burton did have ideas of his own. He pushed for his own story idea. He called it a cross between To Kill a Mockingbird and one of those old Godzilla flicks he loved growing up. But Warner, at that time, only wanted Burton for things that they had already approved script-wise. One thing that Burton did find acceptable, because he was a fan, was the long-gestating The Batman movie that he started cultivating at that time with a new writer that they brought on board called Sam Hamm. Geffen decided to send Burton the Beetlejuice script, and Burton read it, and he judged it structureless and nonsensical, but it was also undeniably imaginative, and it was perversely funny. It was abstract, 
and absurd, but in the best of ways. And it had these bizarre characters, these unusual situations that Burton took comfort in exploring. Burton knew that something that was this stupid and this formless would provide the perfect platform where he could inject just about any idea he wanted into. Now, Burton did inform Wilson and McDowell that he really wanted to do it, but he was still waiting for the green light on Batman. But in the meantime, he did want to hire Wilson and McDowell as screenwriters because he was assigned to direct this adaptation of Ray Bradbury's short story called The Jar for NBC's revival of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So they went ahead and did that in 1986. Now, with Burton unable to commit, Geffen did contemplate at that time, maybe they should go with Frank Oz. Oz happened to be, at that time, working on Little Shop of Horrors for them. So he was going to be freed up soon. Meanwhile, McDowell and Wilson, they started working with this executive at Geffen on a multitude of revisions. The screenwriters, uh, unfortunately, as they went through the process, began to feel demoralized because this executive started removing just about everything that they felt made their story unique and interesting. Now, unfortunately, Frank Oz became mired in a lot of creative issues with Little Shop of Horrors. It extended the production, it blew up the budget, and he just wasn't going to be available in time because according to the Beetlejuice contract, if a director was not assigned by a specified time, and that time was very fast approaching, the rights to the screenplay would revert back to the screenwriters. Fortuitously, Warner just was not going to greenlight Batman, and that did leave Burton available. He started doing more TV work. He directed an episode of Fairy Tale Theater. He also assisted an animator friend named Brad Bird, yes, the future Pixar and Disney director. Burton helped him with design concepts for this episode of Amazing Stories called Family Dog that became its own TV series, very short-lived, a few years later. Now, when Burton was approached again for Beetlejuice, Burton read their latest revision, and he did not like it at all. But he said he would agree to take it on if they could restart with that edgier original script that he enjoyed. McDowell and Wilson were ecstatic about that possibility. Now, Warner, though, they were expecting that they were going to come up with a light comedy, something that would have the wit of Albert Brooks, the whimsy of Frank Capra. Now, Burton was not interested in making that movie at all. So they started questioning just about every decision in script meetings as far as what Beetlejuice was currently about and every decision that they tried to make that wasn't what they thought it should be. Burton compared these script meetings to court depositions. He and the screenwriters would get grilled for hours over just about every detail over and over. And it got to the point that when he and the writers started second-guessing their own decisions before they even took it to Warner's, things became, he felt, increasingly counterproductive. And sensing an impasse, Michael McDowell, he left altogether. He decided he was going to write another ghost comedy, High Spirits, although he did remain available as a consultant as needed. And by the way, Michael McDowell, if that name sounds familiar to you, he did work again with Burton adapting a poem that would become a nightmare before Christmas a few years later. Now, Burton's agent, a man named Mike Simpson, he recommended another client of his, a screenwriter named Warren Skarin. He worked mostly as a script doctor, and he specialized in story structure. Burton decided to meet Skarin. He spent the weekend with him at his hometown of Austin, Texas, and they started sightseeing and discussing their ideas and what they felt the afterlife should be like. The studio approved of bringing Scarin on board because they thought he was very sensible and he would keep Burton from getting just a little too bizarre with his concepts. So Scarin did get hired. He went to work and he started doing 
a lot of work. He simplified the storyline greatly. He made it much more family-friendly. He decluttered the story of extraneous characters and a lot of unnecessary subplots. In the original script, Beetlejuice was this bloodthirsty, shape-shifting demon whose main form resembled kind of a smallish Middle Eastern man with this personality of Groucho Marx. That's how Larry Wilson characterized him. Now, Burton had his own ideas of what Beetlejuice should be like. He thought of him more like a Vegas-style lounge lizard. So Scarin revamped the Beetlejuice character with traits that he drew from Native American trickster mythology, more of a mischievous imp performance artist instead of a homicidal demon. Scarin also felt that Beetlejuice should be introduced as the most interesting character a lot earlier. He introduced him now in the first half. He brought in a TV commercial that advertised his bioexorcism services. and People would know what Beetlejuice was about and anticipate his arrival before he really started taking center stage in the second half. Scarin also streamlined the two Dietz daughters into one character, and he aged that character, Lydia, up to a teenager at the studio's request because they wanted to appeal to the teenage demographic. And he also made Lydia the character that audiences would probably most identify with. He also toned Beetlejuice way, way down. His child rape attempts, yes, he was after one of the kids, which was disturbing in the script because at that time they were like 9 and 10 years old. He took those out and now Beetlejuice wanted Lydia purely for marriage to break his curse. The script also had this disturbing ending where Lydia dies in a fire and stays to live as a ghost with the Maitlands. That was changed altogether to a much happier ending, not only for Lydia, but for pretty much everybody involved. Now, the final story, as we find in the film, we follow Adam and Barbara Maitland. They love their large home in the small town of Winter River, Connecticut. They don't have children to fill it, but maybe one day. After experiencing a freak accident, they discover when they go home a handbook for the recently deceased sitting in their home. And this handbook explains that they're now ghosts bound to their house for the next 125 years. They try to make the best of it, but then they grow appalled because their house gets bought out by this unpleasant nouveau riche Manhattanites, the Dietz family, a real estate speculator named Charles, his tacky sculptor wife Delia, and their goth daughter Lydia. And the Dietzes begin renovating the Maitland house in the gaudiest way possible. So the Maitlands determine that they're going to scare the Dietzes away as ghosts, but the new owners... They grow pleased that they have this haunted house. They can boast and show it off to all their business associates and friends. And eventually, maybe they can make some money off of it and turn it into a tourist attraction. So the Maitlands feel that they have no choice. They summon Beetlejuice, this zany ghoul who advertises his bio-exorcist services to get rid of the living for them. But Beetlejuice often does more harm than good for those who hired him as the Maitlands soon come to find out. Now, that's the setup for the film. Now, after they overspent for a little shop of horrors, Geffen decided to cap Beetlejuice's budget at a very low $13 million for something that was going to have like 300 optical effects. Now, it was mostly set in one location, but it does detour into fantasy realms like Purgatory and the Sand Planet and Beetlejuice's Microverse within the Maitland's town model. It was shot mostly in Culver City Studios, but it did have some exterior work in East Corinth, Vermont. And only $1 million of that $13 million of the budget was going to those hundreds of optical effects needed. 
So Burton decided he was going to hire craftspeople who specialized in low-budget but very good quality effects. Alan Monroe came on board. He storyboarded Burton's desire for this grungy, handmade look similar to these inventive fantasy films that he loved growing up. Effects were going to be done live, and they were going to use a lot of advantageous camera angles and techniques that would minimize the amount of building that they had to do on sets and props. Some of the trickier effects did end up getting shopped out to outside cost-conscious companies for physical effects as well as stop-motion animation, but all with the eye on saving money. Now, when it came time to casting the film, Burton wanted Sammy Davis Jr., for Beetlejuice. <laughs> David Keffen erupted at this. I mean, this was definitely, in his mind, not going to work out. So he countered with some ideas of his own, specifically Michael Keaton. Now, Tim Burton, he was not really familiar with Keaton's work, but he decided to meet him in person and just gauge what he thought of him. And while he talked to Keaton, he saw Beetlejuice within him. You know, Keaton was a live wire. He had manic mannerisms and these big expressionistic eyes. And if you know Tim Burton, you know he loves big eyes. Now, Burton was sold on Keaton, but Keaton was not sold on Beetlejuice. You know, Keaton had been in a slump in his career since Mr. Mom. He didn't want to sink his career further with another dud, especially one that was this bizarre. The story was nonsensical. His character was, in his mind, grossly offensive. He didn't want to play any character who groped a child's breasts, as he was written to do. In the script, now Burton told Keaton that uh, you know the script was really a work in progress, and in his mind, completely open to comical improvisation by the actors. And Keaton liked Burton, but didn't know him well enough, and he turned it down. So they reached out to other actors, and that did include Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis read only five pages before he proclaimed Beetlejuice a piece of junk slasher movie not worth his time. He later called that a beautiful mistake that he didn't take it. The casting department, though, meanwhile, continued to try to get Michael Keaton on board, but his manager, Harry Columbi, he rejected them every single time. So David Geffen, the big player, got on the phone himself. He called Columbi. He told them that Keaton was rejecting here an Oscar nomination. He cajoled him into talking Keaton into just one more meeting with Tim Burton. And to David Geffen, he couldn't say no. So Keaton and Burton, they decided to meet at this local Mexican eatery. And then during their conversation about the film, something did click in Keaton's mind. When Burton mentioned that Beetlejuice can exist in all times and places, Keaton felt that he could have something there, something to hold on to. He asked Burton for a little bit more time to think about it. And during that time, he visited the wardrobe and makeup department for costumes from different time periods. He wanted weird teeth. He tried out some crazy wigs. He added this off-kilter walk and gave himself some manic energy. And he felt afterward invigorated. Beetlejuice was a character that created his own reality, and that was every actor's dream to portray. He could make it whatever he wanted. He showed Tim Burton the look, and Burton did like it, but he sent Keaton to makeup artist V. Neal to try to enhance into something more of what he felt Beetlejuice should be. Now, the original concept drawings depicted Beetlejuice kind of like a hobo or derelict, so V. Neal thought... They should go absolutely wild. She would use these all-new airbrushing techniques to try to make him look distinct among any character anybody has ever seen before in the history of films. 
Now, Burton did like coating actors under a lot of makeup because he felt that once they were under makeup, they would lose themselves, kind of like behind a mask. So Neil really applied thick makeup, and she thought Beetlejuice should look like he crawled out from under a rock. She applied mold and moss growing on his face and neck and hands, and they tried a variety of wigs that were dyed different colors to try to find just the right greenish, sickly yellow look that Beetlejuice should have. And she also applied acrylic nails that Burton had to wear pretty much during his two weeks of shooting to give him a grungy appearance. Now, Burton did fulfill his promise. Improvisation was openly encouraged among them, not only among the cast, but also the crew. People could just throw out ideas and he'd try them out if he thought that they would work. And Keaton's dialogue, at least 90% of it, came mostly during conversations that he had with Burton, just trying different ideas and working those funny exchanges into the film. Now, as far as the casting of the other actors, they reacted very similarly to Keaton. They were muted because the story of the script, it was incomprehensible at that time. It really didn't seem fully formed, and they really couldn't get a handle on it. So Burton literally had to beg each actor to ignore the script and explain his vision in person before they would accept. Now, the first actor that Burton wanted to cast, but he actually ended up being the last cast because because it took David Geffen some time to approve of somebody he had never heard of. And that happened to be Michael McDowell's friend from Alabama, Glenn Shaddix. He played the flamboyant interior designer Otho. Burton was high on Shaddix because he went and viewed a play he was in in Los Angeles at the time where he played Gertrude Stein, yes, the, the lesbian writer, in her play, Dr. Faustus Lights the Lights. And meanwhile, Angelica Houston, she was somebody that they were interested in playing Delia, and she was agreeable, but then she dropped out because her father, John Houston, became gravely ill at that time, and so she was mostly unavailable. Catherine O'Hara, she had been asked several times to come meet for a different role, but she didn't like the script, and she kept blowing it off until David Geffen called her and persuaded her, and when in Los Angeles... She got lost and missed the meeting, which they were going to talk to her about the role. And she flew back to Toronto without this role in mind. And then, delightfully, she received a phone call. They offered her the Delia role. She didn't even have to audition for it. And it was a bigger and juicier role. So, And it was very fortuitous that she took the Delia role. Because in addition to getting a role that became one of her most memorable roles in her movie career, O'Hara also got a husband and a couple of kids out of the deal because Shaddix introduced her to production designer Bo Welch, who she developed a crush on during the shoot, and she would try to talk to him every day a little bit more to show she was interested, but Welch thought that Burton would frown if he fraternized with the actors until one day Burton casually suggested, yeah, maybe he should ask O'Hara out, and he did. They became a romantic item and eventually married in 1992 and have remained together ever since. Sylvia Sidney, she turned down playing Juno, kind of the caseworker for the Maitlands in the afterlife. Sidney read the script. She called it the most disgusting thing she had ever read. It took Burton's earnestness during a personal call to her to win her over. And he also had to win over Jeffrey Jones, who had similar qualms about the script. Gina Davis, who Burton enjoyed in The Fly, she happened to be the only immediate yes playing Barbara, although her six-foot height did limit their options among actors because they thought an actor should be as tall or taller for her husband, Adam. 
Mark Harmon and Jeff Daniels were the top choices for Adam Maitland, but they declined and eventually went to a then mostly unknown Alec Baldwin to play Adam Maitland. Baldwin, of all the cast, has been the most down on Beetlejuice. He didn't like his bland character. Everybody else was getting to chew the scenery, and he was playing this very milquetoast man. He tried to make it wackier. One idea that he had was to do an impression of Robert Cummings throughout the film, but Burton, he just would not allow it. He stated that the Marx Brothers wouldn't be as funny if every other character in their films were just as wacky as they were. So they needed to have them as a point of contrast to all of the eccentric characters that they put into the film. Now for Lydia, Burton liked Winona Ryder. She had a very strong presence in Lucas, and he really liked her and her eyes as well. But he was told initially that she was turning it down because her parents thought, you know, it was somehow seemed too satanic or something. So he thought maybe she had religious objections to it. So they pursued other choices. Alyssa Milano has gone out in public and said that she was the alternate choice, although you see a lot of other names at some point were supposedly pursued. But Burton was mostly sold on Ryder and and had the casting department continue to try. And they finally convinced Ryder's parents to bring her down to meet Burton in person. So when Ryder came in for her audition, she sat in this room and there was another person in the room who struck up a conversation with her, started asking her about music and movies. And she wondered who this guy was asking her questions for like 20 minutes and when Tim Burton was going to show, maybe she was in the wrong place. And that's when the guy in the room sheepishly did admit he actually was Tim Burton. And they pretty much hit it off at that, kind of like peers in a way, instead of just director and actor. Now, as far as when it came to the shoot, entire scenes really came out from brainstorming with the cast and crew. Scarin himself suggested that they should throw in some musical interludes to try to spice up the, the humor, try to break up the monotony of things. He wanted some Motown classics to be thrown in, but they were very pricey, so Geffen wanted them to pursue less expensive oldies. Scarin wrote in a couple. He took the Dietz dinner party scene. In the original script, uh, they were going to be having dinner over this ornate floral design rug, and that rug would sprout vines that would reach up and start wrapping up the guests. And Scarin turned that into a charming, involuntary dance sequence. But the song choice that Scarin put in was If I Didn't Care by the Ink Spots. But during rehearsals, O'Hara thought this was a little too quaint, a little too old. She thought, man, you know, maybe they should put some reggae songs, make it more fun, maybe some Bob Marley or Jimmy Cliff or something like that. Now, Jeffrey Jones happened to recall the names of some Calypso songs that he knew and loved growing up. And a crew member went out and procured a cassette of Harry Belafonte's Deo, also known as the Banana Boat song. After several days of working on Deo for that scene, they showed Burton their routine and he approved of the music change because he thought the Maitlands, you know, they happened to be on vacation. That kind of would be plausible that they would choose Calypso, even though it was kind of a staycation for them. But they needed to get the rights. So David Geffen, because he was a music industry mogul, he called Harry Belafonte personally to secure the rights to Deo. And he found that it was so cheap, reportedly it was about $300, that Geffen decided he was going to buy several of Belafonte's songs. So they decided to use a lot of that music throughout the film. They replaced the end song, which was reportedly going to be Percy Sledge's When a Man Loves a Woman, with Belafonte's Jump in the Line. 
Now, interestingly, Burton did not find a lot of these musical interludes particularly funny personally, and he worried that preview audiences were going to be checked out when these occurred, but it ended up, when they did test it in preview audiences, that they loved it, and eventually it became synonymous with Beetlejuice, as well as the actors in the scene. In fact, Deo played at Glenn Shaddix's memorial at his funeral service in 2010. Now, those preview audiences did like the movie, but they found the first cut fairly difficult to follow. So Warner Brothers ordered reshoots to try to connect the plot points a lot better so the audiences would not be confused throughout. They put in scenes where the Maitlands attempt to escape their home into different dangerous dimensions. Those were made into one recurring desert landscape with ghost-eating sandworms. Burton also cut out some effect sequences that he thought ruined some of the story pacing as well as minimized the potency of surprises that he had down the road. Now, Burton was not particularly keen on the script's ending of Beetlejuice getting chased by a sandworm for eternity in the model town. They had shot that scene, but preview audience reactions also confirmed his suspicions that it was kind of the wrong way to end the film, at least for Beetlejuice. Because they liked the character, they wanted something more upbeat to happen for Beetlejuice as well. So, Scarin wrote in an introductory scene of Beetlejuice reading the paper, looking for work. They brought in Keaton again to do some of these reshoots. They filmed two alternate endings showing Beetlejuice in the waiting room for his last scene. In one scene, the witch doctor shrinks Beetlejuice's head using some voodoo magic. And then in the other scene, Beetlejuice is stuck listening to the recently deceased, apparently, Old Bill. Old Bill happens to be the barber whose shop neighbors the Maitland hardware store. He's shown in an early scene in this film, jabbering incessantly. Beetlejuice can't stand listening to Old Bill, so his head pops off. Preview audiences preferred the shrunken head ending, so they went with that, although these scenes did come at the expense of some early scenes that they had showing some of the closeness of the Maitland's relationship, which the teen audiences found not as interesting. Now, Danny Elfman, of course, he returns as Burton's go-to composer, as he did throughout the rest of his career. One studio exec thought Elfman's score was maybe too dark, but audiences ranked the film actually very highly when Elfman's score was attached and very poorly without it. So it obviously remained. Now, when it came to marketing the film, Warner really was stymied. They felt that this was just way too high a concept to try to market. They didn't really know what to do with it. It had no defined genre. It really didn't have a sellable hook or storyline that they could really explain in one sentence. So even those involved in making the film were skeptical that Beetlejuice was going to find an audience because it was just this weird little film that had these low-grade effects and kind of a stream-of-consciousness way of telling a story. So Warner decided they were going to dump this thing into a thousand theaters and try to recoup whatever they could in its opening weekend, and they were going to market it improperly just to get people to get into the theaters, even if what they found was not what they expected. They went to shopping malls. They polled teenagers that they found there about what kind of film they wanted to see. If they would rather see a film called Beetlejuice or some variation of titles with ghosts in it. And they determined that the title House Ghosts was the most accessible of the titles. It explained at least to them what they were going to be seeing. Burton sarcastically responded to the notion of House Ghosts as, well, why not call it Scared Sheetless? The studio actually considered that title until Burton incensed that they were actually treating it seriously. He threatened he was going to jump out the window if they went with that title. 
David Geffen did manage to step in and insisted to Warner, hey, no title change, we're going with Beetlejuice. Now, when it was released, critics were very mixed, possibly because this was a kind of movie that they didn't quite grasp. It didn't fit their formula of what was a good movie. But the public that went to see it, the audience that they had for it, loved it. Beetlejuice debuted at number one at the U.S. box office and remained there four consecutive weeks. It earned $73 million in its U.S. theatrical run, and it became the 10th highest grossing film of 1988. And that was enough for Warner to finally, immediately, greenlight Burton's Batman project, which would, of course, be his next film. Its makeup effects did go on to win its sole Oscar nomination, and Beetlejuice began Burton to be considered among many as an auteur of his time. You know, his prior film had a lot of critics had given credit to Pee Wee Herman for the style of comedy that they found there, but now with Beetlejuice, they recognized the signature Burton themes and aesthetics. So this definitely did elevate him as a filmmaker to watch among many. Although initially labeled as nonsense, Burton here is delivering a lot of themes underneath. One is to encourage enjoying life as much as you can because apparently death does not end your problems. It's the beginning of other problems as we see in this film. In Lydia, the character of Lydia, he also explores really more for the first time, his recurrent character of this alienated outsider who finds contentment within so-called normal society. That bizarreness, people who are bizarre actually make life much more interesting for everybody. So it should be embraced instead of shunned. Beetlejuice happens to be a stylishly fun film. It has brilliant inventive moments. Michael Keaton here is terrific in the title role. Energetic supporting cast all help out the craftsmanship involved in taking this very low-budget film and making it work is pretty astonishing for its time. Burton is masterful, especially in his aesthetics, in concert with Elfman's phenomenal and very memorable score. This is a film that's built more on flights of fancy than it is suspense, but it has so many delightful moments. You tend to overlook any flaws in its plotting or storyline, just for the overall delight of the experience of watching Beetlejuice. And that's why I give Beetlejuice three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that Beetlejuice is a good film. It definitely has become a classic for a lot of people, especially if they saw it when they were young, growing up. You know, a lot of people have developed a great fondness for this as a film that they went to time and again during their childhood for a very imaginative ride. So three and a half stars out of four is what I give Beetlejuice. Now, Beetlejuice, obviously, it was a big hit for its time, and so immediately they started talking about a Beetlejuice 2 as early as 1989, in fact, Burton started talking about it. Larry Wilson, he had pitched a story where Charles Dietz falls for Barbara Maitland's ghost. They were not interested at all in that, but Warren Scarron actually was commissioned to write a screenplay. He called it Beetlejuice in Love, and in that story, he had a love triangle between Beetlejuice and an opera singer and her dead fiancé, but Scarron died of bone cancer in 1990, and it was effectively scrapped, so they started a new script written by Jonathan Gems called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, which was an idea that Burton had. Some people think that he had that idea because he didn't want them to make it. It was such a stupid idea. But if you know Burton, you know that he does have a love for those old beach movies, too. So I think there is plausibility there. And now in Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, Beetlejuice haunts Charles Dietz, who happens to be developing a hotel 
on the sacred kahunas burial grounds in Hawaii. Burton called this a German expressionist surf movie, something very unique. Heather's screenwriter Daniel Waters also provided a revision to that, and so did Pamela Norris in 1993, and then in 1996, Kevin Smith was given the choice of either writing a Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian screenplay or Superman Lives for Burton. He chose the latter, although for a variety of reasons that are well documented if you follow Kevin Smith's career, that did not work out in a very glorious fashion. In 2011, they started coming up with a new idea. Dark Shadows screenwriter Seth Graham Smith wrote a new script. In 2017, Mike Fukudinovich also tried to come up with a screenplay. So it has been in development hell for a long, long time. And depending on when you ask, sometimes they say it's on. Sometimes they think maybe this ship has sailed. But it's something that we still have yet to see. Maybe it's time has passed for a lot of people. Who knows? Given the lightning in a bottle aspect to it, maybe it's best that they leave it as is. Now, it did spin off, though, if you want to follow the further adventures of Beetlejuice. There was this Emmy-winning cartoon series that ran for a few seasons uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. A Universal Studios attraction, uh, video games, children's books, comics. And it also just recently was made into a musical that appeared on Broadway in 2018. So Beetlejuice does live on, even if they can never get a sequel together. Anyway, that's Beetlejuice. If you have your own thoughts on Beetlejuice, something I didn't cover here or something you want to talk about, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are all there. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. As far as what I'm going to be doing on the next episode, well, let's keep the haunted house theme going with one of the films that actually inspired Larry Wilson to choose a ghost story as something sellable and create Beetlejuice, 1982's Poltergeist. From director Toby Hooper, or is it directed by Steven Spielberg? I'll go into that quite extensively on the next episode. So if you're wondering about the making of Poltergeist, and that is one that has been a mystery for a lot of people for a long time, I'll do my best to cover that for you on the next episode. I anticipate that will be one of the more popular episodes that I do here on Around the World in 80s Movies, and I'm looking forward to deep diving into that for next time. But until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world, just ahead of that sandworm in 80s movies. Run, 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 Sierra!